the talk this evening feels like the companion to the talk that I gave two weeks ago to the staff. The subject of that talk was faith, doubt and self-acceptance. The subject of the talk this evening is beyond the grip of fear. The path of meditation is a path of opening. And in the natural unfolding of the practice, we come to see deeply the truth of who or what it is that we are, opening to much that is new, much that we had no inkling of before. We open to what the Buddha called the Four Noble Truths, the noble truth of change, and in so much as we know that truth outwardly, so too we come to see the change within ourselves. Ultimately, we come to know that who we are is this change, that there is no solidity, no one here. We open to the noble truth of suffering, for it is the tendency of the mind to cling. And because what it is that we cling to or are averse to is changing, we suffer. In the natural unfolding, we open also to the richness of ourselves, to the power and the splendor of our heart and minds. We open to qualities and capacities for love and kindness and compassion, generosity and sympathetic joy. And we open also to places of calm and happiness, tranquility, joy, equanimity perhaps also. And in all of this opening, there is in the end no goal to be achieved, nothing to be attained. Rather, the meditation practice is the process of letting go of all that obscures what was always there, our birthright, if you will. Buddha nature, the perfection of who we truly are. It's the clouds that obscure this truth of ourselves that we are called upon to work with, and what it is that prevents us from opening, what it is that keeps us closed, what it is that obscures our Buddha nature is the fear. This powerful conditioned force of the body and the mind that prevents us from knowing the truth, prevents us from knowing the Dharma. And if on our spiritual path we do not acknowledge 
the fear. If we do not grapple and engage the fear, we deprive ourselves of the possibility and potential of great freedom. And this would be a tragedy. It would seem to be the essence of spiritual cowardice that we not acknowledge the reality of fear that is surely there. For when we do not acknowledge the fear, our efforts must remain shallow and superficial. This is from the Gospel of St. Thomas, the Gnostic Gospels. He says, if you bring forth what is within you, what you bring forth will save you. If you do not bring forth what is within you, what you do not bring forth will destroy you. The Dharma is about the totality of our lives. 360 degrees. There is nothing that falls outside of the Dharma. And all that arises is potentially and ultimately workable. It must be so. And in the meditation practice, we come again and again to the edges, to our limits, to our boundaries, places that we've not been before, the edges, perhaps, of what is acceptable and what is known, where the familiar ends and where the unknown begins. These are the edges of possibility. And here, too, there must be fear. And the question is, can we open to this fear? I'm not implying for a moment that there is a place where the fear ends. Rather, can we open to the fear completely? Where we acknowledge it, where we examine it, and where we wholeheartedly explore its nature. Becoming, if you will, naked in the presence of fear. Willing to be totally vulnerable. If necessary, feeling the fear in every cell of our body, as long as it has life again and again and again. This is the movement from fear to fearlessness. Not less fear, but rather much less a victim of the grip of fear. What is it that we're afraid of? Well, certainly there is fear of pain. It's perhaps in the meditation practice the first fear that arises, fear of the pain. Sometimes it's hard to sit still and to just be present with what it is that arises in the body. And yet pain is part of the deal of taking birth. 
Aging and sickness begin the moment that we're born. And we're conditioned to be afraid of pain so deeply. There is such an unwillingness to allow the pain just to be. And the question then must be, can we open fully to the truth of our bodies, to the noble truth of our bodies? Can we make our minds spacious and receptive to all that arises? The heat, the pressure, the throbbing, the tingling, the cold, the stabbing, and so forth. The whole catastrophe, as Zoba put it. Pain is a great object of attention. It focuses the mind so easily sometimes. It's riveting. And each time we reach the threshold of what we're able to bear in the body, the fear is there too. And often with it comes a proliferation of thoughts. We all have our own versions. We can't get up, it's getting worse. This is crippling, I have to stop sitting, and so forth, and so forth. All of this escalates the suffering so much, usually way beyond the original pain that was there. And we're caught in a great struggle. I'd like to speak personally, if I may, for a moment. As most of you know, I'm HIV positive. I'm living with the AIDS virus. And for me, this has really been a dual diagnosis. On the one hand, it's a physical diagnosis. And on the other hand, it's a diagnosis of fear. In a real way, the virus comes, with the virus comes the collective terrors, the irrational phobias and the ignorant fears of a humanity deeply fearful of this virus and largely ignorant and unknowing of how it works or understands it. And so what this means for me in a day-to-day -day way is that any ache or pain or bump on the skin or blemish might bring with it, first of all, a reasonable, sort of rational, understandable concern. Then what also might arise are the fears of what it might be. Perhaps what happened to me before, or perhaps what happened to a friend of mine before. Or perhaps there's fear of what I've read about, or what somebody's told me about. And then, in the end, what might further arise is just that nameless, wild, overwhelming terror that I know so well. And the challenge for me, certainly, is can a cough be just a cough? Can a blemish on the skin be just that? Can a muscle ache be just a mus muscle ache? 
that I might respond with balance and with wisdom and with tenderness in an appropriate sort of way, not responding within the grip of fear. This is the real stuff of the meditation practice. But really this, I feel, applies to all of us. Our bodies must change, they must age, get sick and ultimately begin to fall apart. Unless that is, of course, unless we die young. And I reflect often these days on the question of long life. Throughout civilization, humankind has been fascinated and has yearned for some sort of potion or elixir that brings with it the promise of eternal youth and of long life. And really, this goes on right up until today. In California, I understand that there are women and men who are freezing their bodies, that they might one day be thawed and renewed and healed in some way. Howard Hughes lived the last years of his life in a physical vacuum, in terror of germs and disease and stuff, and he died. People clutch vitamins and people espouse different therapies. People wield different diets, all with a feverish fervor that really belies the great fear that there is of our mortality. And imagine for a moment if that potion were discovered <laughs> and we could live to be 500 years or a thousand years old. How long would you last? <laughs> I probably would commit suicide long before then anyway. So that's the first fear, really, fear of pain, fear of, of our bodies. The next fear is, is really the fear of insecurity, more of a psychological kind of fear. We come from lives deeply conditioned to value security and solidity. Careers, wealth, goals, lifestyles, stature, all valued and prized so much in our world. This world that we live in requires that we feel sure and invulnerable, strong and armored. And then in the meditation practice, we begin to see the change, the anicca. And it's very scary. We want the stability. We want, this, we want solid ground beneath our feet. And fear arises. We feel insecure. We're afraid of being unloved, of being alone and vulnerable. We're afraid of being rejected. 
We're afraid also of not being accepted or recognized, of not being respected as we'd like to be. And this fear of insecurity often makes us turn outside of ourselves for validation and for dependence, with no inner reference at all sometimes. And if this happens, we lose ourselves and open ourselves then to the possibility of being used and of being hurt and of being disappointed. And so here too the challenge of the practice is can we love with all of this insecurity, all of this change? It's really the stuff of the practice. Fear of pain, fear of insecurity, and then there's the big fear, the fear of death. I spoke at length of the fear of death in a talk here in January to the staff during the staff retreat, so I'll be somewhat brief. The truth is really that most people are petrified of dying and expend vast amounts of energy avoiding the thought and any indication of really what is inevitable for each of us. There is so much fear of death and it drives so much of what we do. Fear of death is the resistance that we feel to the change that we see in the meditation practice. And ultimately, there will always be a fear of death. If there is any holding on to the body or any holding on to the idea of selfhood in any way. And as the meditation practice deepens and we come to see the dissolution of the body, as the truth of the body begins to reveal itself, it's really scary. It's called the rolling up of the mat stage of the practice. People just want to run. As we begin to see and let go of the idea of solidity, that it's just a lie, can we open to all of this fear? It's really difficult. This is Rumi. He says, if you don't break the ropes, while you're alive, do you think that ghosts will do it afterwards? The idea that the soul will join with the ecstatic just because the body is rotten, that is all fantasy. What is found now is found then. If you find nothing now, you will simply end up with an empty apartment in the city of death later. However, if you make love with the Divine now, in the next life you will have the face of peace. 
There is an image I like a lot. I've used it personally in times of great difficulty, times of pain, times of fear. I'd like to share with you. It's something that the Dalai Lama said. He said, in those times of challenge, he said, rest your head in the lap of the Buddha. Rest your head in the lap of the Buddha during the fearful times. This is Venerable Trungpa Rinpoche. He says, going beyond fear begins when we examine our fear, our anxiety, nervousness, concern, restlessness. If we look into our fear, if we look beneath its veneer, the first thing we find is sadness. Nervousness is cranking up, vibrating all the time. When we slow down, when we relax with our fear, we find sadness, which is calm and which is gentle. Sadness hits you in your heart and your body produces a tear. Before you cry, there is a feeling in your chest and then after that, you produce tears in your eyes. You're able to produce rain or a waterfall in your eyes and you feel sad and lonely at the same time. That is the first tip of fearlessness and the first sign of real warriorship. You might think that when you experience fearlessness, you will hear the opening to Beethoven's Fifth Symphony or see a great explosion in the sky. But it doesn't happen that way. Discovering fearlessness comes from working with the softness of the human heart. So how is it then, working with the softness of our great hearts, that we can open to this fear? Well, first of all, of course, it's important to recognize the fear. And at first, it's really very difficult to do that. There are no clear forms to the fear. There is no specific shape. We don't see, perhaps, the beginning and the end of fear, and it can be so confusing. Patience is so important in working with fear. This is what Rilke says about patience. I really love this. He says, be patient towards all that is unresolved in your heart. Do not now seek answers that cannot be given, but take whatever comes with great respect. Our willingness to begin again and again and again seems particularly vital here also. And gradually, the many faces and facets of fear do begin to emerge. It's a slow process in my experience and requires great care and attention and a lot of courage too. We've spent a lifetime camouflaging the fear. 
And so what this means, it seems, is that on this path to fearlessness, there must be a willingness to stop at any time, any moment, day or night, for the slightest unfamiliar movement of energy and ask the questions, what is this? Is this perhaps fear? Where do I experience it? In the body? In the mind? What are the images? Thoughts? Is there resistance? Is there contraction? And slowly and surely, there does come to be a knowing of the fear. Until one day we can say, I see you fear, I see you now. As the Buddha said two and a half thousand years ago under the Bodhi tree, Mara, I see you. Slowly this truth of fear and its magnitude comes out into the open, into the light of our great awareness. And for me, with this insight has come great faith and joy and happiness. Sort of ironic, but true. For the truth is that fear affects so much. And in its recognition, for me, there has been such appreciation and gratitude for the knowing and a deep sadness also. The immediate sadness related to the suffering that has been. But a sadness too with the fuller understanding of the ultimate aloneness that is the truth of this path of awakening. No one can do what has to be done for us. And for me, this has been a time of the death of many dreams. Well, sobering time. This is Trumpa again. He says, the birth of the warrior is like the first growth of a reindeer's horns. At first, the horns are very soft and almost rubbery and they have little hairs growing on them. They're not yet horns as such, they're just sloppy growths with blood inside. Then as the reindeer ages, the horns grow stronger, developing four points, or ten points, or even forty points. They look like horns, but you can't quite fight with them yet. When a reindeer first grows its horns, it doesn't know what to use them for. It must feel very awkward to have those soft, lumpy growths on your head. But when the reindeer begins to realize that it should have horns, that horns are a natural part of being a reindeer, In the same way, when a human being first gives birth to the tender heart of fearlessness, she or he may feel extremely awkward and uncertain about how to relate to this kind of feeling. 
But then as you experience the sadness more and more, you realize that human beings should be tender and open. And so you no longer have to feel shy and embarrassed about being gentle. So that's the first step, really, in working with fear is deeply recognizing when it arises and when it passes away. And the second is acceptance of the fear. And this is difficult, for the truth is that the energy of fear is really unpleasant. And it is a conditioned response to fear that there be resistance and that there be aversion and that there be contraction. And for me, working with acceptance of fear has meant a full engagement of the resistance, pivotal to loosening the grip of fear. And the questions would then seem to be, where is the resistance to the fear held? No personal question. Where is the resistance, the contraction? In the body, in the mind, in the shoulders, the neck, the chest, the throat perhaps, the gut, the face. Opening to the resistance, not that it might go away, but just in and of itself, experiencing the resistance to fear, watching the thoughts that might arise. Difficult stuff. And then opening to the fear of fear. It seems that an attitude of loving acceptance is vital. Can we be a friend of the fear? Can we be a friend of fear? Joseph images an infant filled with fear and asks these questions, do we beat the kid because it's fearful? Or do we feed the kid's fear? And the question then would seem to be to ask ourselves, can we treat our fear like a child, giving it space, care, whatever time it needs, and great tenderness? Always of hopefully coming to deeper and deeper acceptance of the fear. So there's recognition, there's acceptance. <clears throat> and for me, very important has been to carefully evaluate the situation each and every time the fear arises. For it seems that sometimes backing off is the most skillful response to the fear using our discriminating wisdom, sometimes backing off and regathering the energy so that we might later come forward and do the work that needs to be done. 
there's no rush. And at other times, really staying with the fear. And either way, really, it takes courageous and it takes sustained effort. Fear always requires a willingness to really work our edges again and again and again. And always, if we observe the fear in order that it might go away, then we just caught again. And there's perhaps even further fear because of that. Fear has taught me much about the subtleties of unconditional observation. Recognition, acceptance, and carefully evaluating the situation. Fear then is really a place of possibility. Can we welcome it in that way? It's a real edge. Fear arises always at a place of opening. For what is open is new territory. And that's usually a threshold of fear. Fear is not a problem. Some people even might say that fear is a gift when it arises. Sometimes difficult to really touch gratitude with fear. But it's really truly where the truth of the moment is. This is Trumpa again. He says, when you begin to feel comfortable being a gentle and decent person, your reindeer horns no longer have little hairs growing on them. They are becoming real horns now. Situations become very real, quite real, and on the other hand, quite ordinary. Fear evolves into fearlessness, naturally, very simply, and quite straightforwardly. The ideal of warriorship is that the warrior should be sad and tender and because of that, the warrior can be very brave as well. Without that heartfelt sadness, bravery is brittle, like a china cup. If you drop it, it will break or chip. But the bravery of the warrior is like a lacquer cup, which has a wooden base covered with layers of lacquer. If the cup drops, it will bounce rather than break. It is soft and hard at the same time. And so here again too, the challenge in the meditation practice is ultimately in its emergence into the fullness of our lives. As we come to know the deeper levels of fearlessness within, so too are we able to bring this freedom into our lives as we engage the world around us. For to the extent that we know and have grappled with the many faces of fear within, so too are we able to recognize and work with the fears of others. Not with contraction, 
and not with more fear, but rather with the compassion and wisdom that is fearless and loving. We don't have to look too closely to see that we do live in a world clearly within the grip of fear. We have developed a frenetic pace of life that we might avoid the fear and difficulty as much as possible. We keep busy at any cost. And this frantic momentum is largely our place of safety and refuge from what we don't wish to feel. And if we do inadvertently slow down, we feel desperate and confused and immediately rev up the engine again, just to keep running. The clothes of the subterfuge are everywhere. Have you noticed? We fidget and twitch. We bite and chew our nails. We doodle. We fiddle and play with our hands. In our pockets, our faces are stretched, our bodies are tense and tight, rigid. We're so adept at creating strategies to keeping our mind off what is difficult, away from the fear. For it seems, from a coward's point of view, stopping and slowing down, reflecting, feeling, just being, all the stuff of the practice, all the reasons why we're here, from the coward's point of view, these are all dangerous and must be avoided, for in this winding down, there is space for the fear to arise, for our anxieties to surface, and providing an opportunity for what is difficult to become obvious. And these must be avoided at all costs. And so here too, in the meditation practice, our efforts are really radical. As we engage the fear, and as we know some degree of fearlessness in our lives, we at the same time change the world in a very real way. What a gift that is. What a blessing to a world within the grip of fear, a world so paralyzed by fear. I'd like to close by sharing a little story with you, if I may. In February and March of this year, I was in Hawaii for about six weeks. And every Tuesday evening, I would go to a support group of women and men who, like me, are HIV positive. And one evening, this man, Bob, came in, and he had these cancerous lesions on his skin. And he always wore sleeves down to his elbows so that nobody could see these lesions. And he said that a couple of nights earlier, he was out, 
And this total stranger came up to him and lifted the shirt of his sleeve. He'd obviously seen what was under the sleeve. And he lifted the shirt of his sleeve and took his arm and kissed the legion. So this is a total stranger. And he said to Bob, my hope and prayer is that these will soon be healed and gone forever. And he turned around and he walked off. What an act of fearlessness. What a gesture of love. Really, what a blow he struck at the heart of fear in our world. The genuine heart of sadness comes from feeling that your heart is full. You would like to spill your blood and give your heart to others. For the warrior, this experience of sad and tender heart is what gives birth to fearlessness. Real fearlessness is the product of tenderness. It comes from letting the world tickle your raw and your beautiful heart. You're willing to open up without resistance or shyness and face the world. You're willing to share your heart with others. May we sit together for a moment, please. <clears throat> 